Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as well, well, obviously, we want to ask you about being a bishop, but you have, you've had a bit of a, a, a baptism of fire, really. Have you, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the title Right Reverend goes with bishops, so I was thinking Right Idiot would be a more appropriate <laughs> one for taking up the role at the particular time that I did at the beginning of February. Uh, so just after the bishops had decided to do something and before the synod voted on doing something. So whether that's a providence, I'm not sure. Uh, how have you found that? Because, I mean, I guess if, if, if you had a choice, you'd have a little bit of time to settle into the role and, <laughs> and you know, kind of work out, you know, having, having studied, you know, you have a good ecclesiology, a good uh, theology, episcopacy, you know, thinking about how that actually works. You need yeah, to say that because I did Jake last year and talked about bishops, ironically, before <laughs> you had the job. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then you dropped in at the deep end, there's all this stuff going on. How's that been? Um, it, it has been hugely unsettling, no more than it is for anybody else, but on the other hand, uh, at the same time as seeing the church I love wrestling with really serious issues, we've been changing family, context, home and job. So yeah. uh, all of that. I tried to tick all the boxes on the stress-related stuff because uh, <laughs> I'd had my father die in the whole process as well, so all of that. But um, I, I, I think, you know, we were always called to serve... And I only have felt called to this as an act of obedience, not really of a great desire to um, join the ranks of the episcopacy. But actually, um, in doing that, God gives you what he needs. And so I can honestly say I have felt and depended on the prayers of other people to do what I've been doing. Because mm. I think if I measured it humanly or I measured a bit of other things, it wouldn't have been sustainable. So I thank God for that and the fact he does very tangibly answer prayers. And I think mm. if you've been one of those praying for me, I do appreciate that. And I really have felt that in the role. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's been a bit, there was a bit of a late moving house, wasn't there? And then. Yeah, hugely late on that. And I only had four days when I thought I needed two weeks. And yeah, there were a lot of things like that. But. Um, but, you know, in a crisis, you, can't, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, just hang on, hold the crisis for a little while. Mm. But, I mean, it's like parish ministry. You know, you, when you face those times, you trust God to provide the resources you need and you just have to step up. So uh, that's what I've tried to do. Um, but I've got some people telling me off that I'm doing it, you know, I'm trying to get to a better work-life balance in so the new mar- term. married to Sarah and it's Sam, Sam's still at home. But then there's yeah, so Charles three kids. Um, my eldest is a youth worker in Duffield. My mm-hmm. middle uh, daughter is a fully qualified physio in Liverpool. And um, my youngest is still at home, working at a hotel at the moment. In fact, he's just discovered uh, absolutely amazingly that his dream job for years was going to be getting paid to do nothing. And he is and doesn't like it. And so he's now thinking about doing something seriously because he works, um, he works in a, a golf hotel and sits in the halfway house feeding hamburgers to whoever wants hamburgers halfway around the golf course and just basically spends his time pretty much doing nothing all day and getting paid for it. And then, but he doesn't like it anymore, so he's actually thinking about doing something constructive in his life. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You had a nice holiday by a lake in Italy and you come yes. back refreshed and... Maybe just, you know, feeling that there's a little bit of time to stretch your legs. What are your hopes in the next sort of, you know, sort of three or four months? Uh, what, what are you hoping to sort of do now? Um, so what, what ought bishops to do is a, a moot point, because most evangelical churches I've known and been one of those over the year generally try to um, keep bishops away most of the time mm-hmm. and, you know, hopefully draft them in occasionally to do something helpful. But, I mean, at the moment, you know, the best I can do, I think, is to encourage as much as I can with the biblical faith. I know it's, it, it has been a bit of a, an unusual experience for some churches where I have been in and they haven't had a bishop who's preaching the Bible before properly or something like that. So if that's a help, I can do that. Um, to give some wisdom and guidance navigating through the paths that we're on at the moment in so much as I can, although um, there isn't... Sometimes we use shorthand for, you know, what the bishops are doing. In all the paperwork that's been produced, it's, not a, it's been clear that the bishops are as divided as the church is. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a sort of secret um, coalition of bishops. There is a, a, an inner group that has a pretty particular <coughs> focus, but other bishops feel as clueless as everybody else does because this process is a process and they haven't actually predetermined an outcome yet. So to some extent, it's trying to help to say what are the principles that we build on and to actually say, it is, you know, it's not okay, it's actually wonderful to be Anglican, 
because we have foundations that are secure. We just need to keep asking people to build on those and not build an outhouse at the side that's built on other sand and things like that. So we need to, uh, if I can help with that. And then at personal level, there are all sorts of particular pastoral issues where I can be a bit of a broker between uh, in broken situations and um, ministry situations as well. And then the joy is where I get to join in with church life again because my heart is in parish ministry and um, the extent to which we have set up a leadership structure where bishops aren't in parish ministry is actually not is actually to our shame and they are very very disconnected mm-hmm. um, and that's one of the reasons that they genuinely were clueless about how the prayers of love and faith would fly mm-hmm. because they're not dealing with normal parish people they're surrounded by sycophants and lobbyists if you're a bishop of people who are trying to suck up to you or people who are trying to get something out of you um, and what you miss is that most people in the church are not that they're people who are struggling to be Christians in a non-Christian world and, and with some are taught better than others but most actually do want to honour Christ in some way um, and so when bishops do things that actually throw a spanner in that it, it unsettles everybody so you know and, and, and they may have they may be on one side of this or the other it doesn't really matter but actually what actually makes it really a crisis is when you um, undermine those foundations that most people have in their life about what being Christian is. It's interesting, the Times report, if you saw the thing yesterday where mm. it was talking about how the church has all gone mad, even the Times agreed that the church's position on sexuality was sex was for marriage. It sort of led that in the preamble. But actually, if you heard all the debates in Synod and the papers from the, the bishops, they were less clear on it than the Times was, mm. uh, which is a tragedy, really, because um, actually, historically, the doctrine has been very clear and the Bible's, of course, crystal clear, so... Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping and praying to help, uh, to be of use where I can, to use what gifts God's given me to, to bless the church, and give hope. Because God is on the throne, the gospel is still true, and that doesn't cease to be even when other things are shaken. So I've taken that um, Psalm 11, you know, when the foundations are being shaken, what, does, what can the faithful do? And that's God's answer. The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord is on his sovereign throne. So hold those things and as both history and scripture shows god will always have a people um, and let's make sure we're part of that <laughs> rob you're going to teach us about uh, us being the church for the last about our passion for those who need jesus i'm going to pray for you heavenly father uh, just thank you for rob thank you for calling him thank you for equipping him Thank you for his encouragement and his vision for the ministry you've given him. I pray you'd sustain him and bless him and bless him now as he speaks to us. May he speak your words powerfully uh, and may we be uh, able to respond faithfully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So hopefully you've got some Bibles, but um, John 15 is where I would like to go um, and, and read to you that. What do you do? When things are shaky, when the future looks daunting, when you've just been told by the person you've been following day and night for three years that he's not going to be with you anymore, um, these words seem to be what Jesus thinks we need to hear, certainly what his apostles needed to hear to prepare them for the future. So um, the, the first 17 verses of John 15, let me read it. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. (coughs) Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. And this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Now remain in my love. And if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. A greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. And you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. fruitfulness um, back in 1998 the government um, having identified how deprived homes children and babies from deprived homes seem to be seriously disadvantaged in the start of education at age five uh, in access to services and things like that in comparison to the sort of middle class norm um, set up a scheme called sure start which you may have heard of um, officially it's no more um, but large investment was put up in setting up centres to build health advice, educational support and childcare, to bring together health visitors, midwives, social workers, nursery teams. When I was in Cheadle for 20 years, by a weird providence, I ended up chairing two of the local Sure Start centres, uh, partly because actually, you know, like Christians have this capacity <coughs> ecumenically to fall out. Actually, health services with each of the different divisions, health services, midwives, they all fell out with each other, so they needed somebody who was dispassionately not involved from one online group or not to chair it all. So, um, and we had a brilliant couple of Sure Start centres. It was successful. We were rated um, outstanding in the Ofsted. We produced great publicity. We had a video that was then commandeered by the whole of Stockport and recast so that it was for all the short star centres when in fact we'd just done it for ours it got good numbers attending it got extra funding except that it was a failure and it's now closed all in 20 years why? because it, it lost sight of what it was there for it got good numbers but they were mainly from the bored middle class who wanted cheap childcare the single mums who had obesity problems and mental health problems didn't get out the door to go. It had good publicity, even a video, but of course they don't have computers. So they weren't reached. It had resources and refurbished to be a special building, but it didn't benefit the people who needed it because they didn't know how to get out of the house. They were just stuck in and it was quite an eye-opener because Cheadle is generally middle class, but this was a an underclass that had no representation and no voice. In fact, if I hadn't been chairing the Short Start Centre, I wouldn't have known it existed. It lost sight of what it was there for. And so it's probably right that it is no more. You know, we're wrestling with crises in the Church of England. We've got numbers, issues, finances, theology, ministry. It forces us to ask that question of what are we really here for? What are the priorities that Jesus has for us? Why do we exist? And we're so used to the church being there that we might have lost sight of what it's being there for. And that's what Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp. As they were troubled and afraid, it says in 1427... Don't be troubled, don't be afraid, because he's having to leave in you. What would the future be? And so I think he brings us in this little section back to the heart of what matters most, of who he is, who they are, what Christian faith lived out should really be about. And what he says to help them understand what the heart of faith is, is this great picture. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And, and it was a great picture, he's not just talking about horticulture here, the disciples got it because the vine was the symbol of a particular people. You know, if I ask you what, what symbol, you know, what nation is symbolised by a thistle, you know, Scotland, yeah, a leek, yeah, Wales, shamrock. No, if you said vine, everybody knew it was Israel. It, it was the carved over the door of the temple, it was printed on their coins. This is the people of God. And Jesus says... You, uh, he reminds them of that calling and says, you know, <laughs> where's the real people of God? 
What are you called? Not to just, you know, you're not called to just do stuff for me, but who you belong to. And, and, and that's what God has always been about. In, in calling out a people to himself through the world, uh, so the world would be blessed, was the heart of the Abrahamic call. That's what he has been doing throughout history and all the generations, Old and New Testament, what he promised through Abraham, through him and his family, that everybody would be blessed. God's purpose is a people. It's not just a plan of salvation or a personal therapy for problems. It is the purpose to bring everything under Christ. Incorporation in Christ to unite us in broken world in him. It's a far bigger version of what we have failed to grasp. That actually Jesus' purpose is everything and everyone. Not just you know a little cluster of the 5% who dare to turn up remotely in the Sunday. Or maybe the 20% who occasionally come through the doors of a building. His vision is that actually all will be called to belong. And even though God's people kept falling and failing and rebelling, Jesus' point is that the true Israel, the point of the promise, is revealed. And the blessing and purpose of our life will be found in him. He is the vine. He is the true Israel. He is the one who is our ultimate destiny. If you want to know the true meaning of life, you need to belong to him. And that, in the end, ultimately, is why England needs a church. Because there is no life to be found outside, ultimately, of union in Christ. United in and by him. And that's the first heart of the image here. Only life rooted in Christ will be truly fruitful. Only life rooted in Christ will be truly fruitful. See, that vine picture given by God shaped the nation shows up both our position and our purpose. As regards our position in a vine, the branch only lives by being connected to the whole. And just as vine branches are tangibly connected to the vine, and thereby to everything else, our true Christian faith is connection to Jesus. He is the source of our life. He's the sustenance of our life. He's the strength of our life. There is no church unless we are in him, living and sustained by him. But that means having a living connection to each other. You know, it's a bigger vision than just saying I can sort myself out individually. Branches outside of the vine don't connect. And therefore we're called to an interdependence and not an independence. Which is a challenge in a self-asserting, independent-minded culture. We're happy to function largely separate from each other, even. There are very few other people that we would say we're dependent on in ministry or as churches. It's a particular challenge to evangelical churches where we tend to be slightly larger and healthier than everybody else. We don't feel any responsibility for the weaker and woollier churches down the road. Well, they're not like us. They're not sound enough. They're not us. That's not Jesus' vision. Jesus looks for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. His vision is bigger than what we're looking at. We're called to be connected, first to Christ and then to each other. I'd want to suggest that as we face a challenge and a crisis, being engaged in that wider church and into our wider community is not an extra for the keen or the campaigning. It is our calling. So that every family on earth will be blessed. And, you know, friendship evangelism is a great vision but will never reach beyond about 20% of the population because, you know, people might know Christians, but they're only friends with a few. Jesus didn't hang out with his friends. And the extent to which we disconnect or go our own way is the extent to which we weaken other branches. So while that vine image speaks of our position in relation to Christ and each other, we need those connections to be real it also reveals the primary purpose of our connection. Because a vine is only good for one thing. You can't carve it. That was one of my lockdown projects was to get into wood carving. Trust me, it's useless. You can't make things out of it. It's too brittle and breaks. And you can't burn it. It just goes to ash. It doesn't really sustain a flame. It's only good for making grapes. And how many people here have ever benefited from the fruit of grapes? Pretty much. Yeah, we all do it. It's even... In our sacramental ministry, vines are utterly useless except for bearing fruit, which is a great picture for us. And when they do, everybody enjoys it. 
a life rooted in Christ, connected to the vine, is intended to bring fruit that benefits others. And then you say, well, what sort of fruit are you talking about? Then, verse 8, it brings something that will bring glory to the Father. Firstly, that means, as a Christian, it makes Jesus visible. You know, bring glory is about manifesting the true nature of what it stands for, obviously, and the glory of the temple, the Shekinah glory, you can see how great God is because the cloud fills the temple. But actually here he's saying, Jesus is saying, actually, what you do by being interconnected in me is that you show God to the world. You actually make him visible. There should be something about our life that shows that God is here. Something about this that says, well, God is here. And Christianity Church is not our personal therapy in the face of life's problems to affirm us That's the lie of the inclusive church gospel, is that it's all about you. Now, this is not that. This is saying we're focused on the glory of God. It's all about him. He's the one that's on the throne. He's the one to be exalted. He's the one to be made visible in our midst. His holiness, his purity, his grace. And we exist to show that he rules and saves. So fruit makes him visible, but more particularly the fruit that a vine bears ultimately exists to make more vines. That's what sort of fruit does. And the life of God in us and the church has a focus, not on us, but on that future of those who will grow in the future through what we do. Being rooted in Christ therefore shows God to people, but shares God with people too and who do we reach out to who are we serving the church of england puts our calling at risk if all we can debate on is how we can keep what we have to keep it going which tends to be what we're really concerned about how can we keep doing what we're doing we're faithful and they're not but actually we really want to just keep going because we're all feeling vulnerable at the moment but jesus is saying no actually your purpose is to keep growing to keep multiplying you know the parable of the sower? We all love to be the seed on good ground, don't we? But you know the test of the good ground? It gives forth, what was the fruit of the seed on the good ground? 30, 50, 100 fold. I mean, it's, it's a bit sanguine. I was thinking about that the other day and thinking, you know, can I say there are 30 people that have come to faith because of my ministry? Or 50 or 100? I'm not sure I can claim good ground. It's humbling, isn't it? And Jesus' image is there not to try and diminish us and demean us, but actually to give us a priority focus to say what we're trying to do is to make his kingdom visible, bring every knee under his lead. You know, our Christian slogan for the Church of England, you know the Christian slogan we have? Christian presence in every community. There you are. Absolutely right. Christian presence in every community. But what I love is that this conference has got it better because it should be a Christian presence for every community not just in there that's not the point for us all because if we don't do that if we don't grow new new faith our life will look like the non-christian community around us you know we'll have so privatized our faith nobody will really hear that mention of jesus and it's amazing how you can do that even in evangelical churches jesus doesn't always get a mention does he because you know we've got nice music and you can do that with quite avoiding making the focus in jesus picture the branch that's not rooted in him bearing no fruit with us and will be picked up and burned eventually and it looks okay for a bit when you cut it off the tree doesn't it for a day or two that it withers jesus purpose is for our vine to grow and to grow fruit So how do we do that without us all feeling personal failures and collectively depressed at the state of our church? You know, how would the disciples get on without Jesus being physically with them? They'd spent three years following in his footsteps, literally. What are they going to do when he's no longer doing that? I mean, they know a little bit later on he's going to promise to be with them by the Spirit, but not in the same way. So I think Jesus presses this image to help us in exactly that. How will we be more fruitful? How will we fulfil this calling to reach the nation and beyond in Christ. And the first one is very clear and very painful. There's two. It happens when we prune sin. When we get the shears out. For a fruitful life, we must let God get rid of the stuff that is holding us back. 
And notice Jesus is pretty pointed in saying that needs to happen to relatively fruitful branches too, to be more fruitful. England needs a church that lives repentance. That is always wrestling with its need for forgiveness and grace. We're shaped by it liturgically. Thank God for a church that still confesses its sin. Maybe that's why we've got so many extra sins with the eventics, because we always um, at least have something to confess. A bit like Paul says, you know, should we sin that grace may be abound? You know? Well, he says in no way, but we, we sort of institutionalising it instead. But I think at the end of the day, thank God we do that. Some churches, denominations in our country have, have stopped that because it makes you feel bad. But actually, until we know our need of grace of Christ, we won't ever bow the knee to his lordship. The way to fruitfulness is not to compromise with our weaknesses and failures, or even to affirm them. Rather, we're to literally clean them, as it says, you know, prune them. It is holiness-focused, because this is not the best world that there is. And that the world that Jesus is going to bring, when we all bow the knee wholly and completely to him, that's the glorious truth and the promise that we're awaiting. And that's what we need, which means cleaning off all the baggage and other stuff that gets in the way and having that vision of the purity of Christ taking root in our hearts. And we know we're not pure. We need to come to him in repentance. And we need to go back to the cross for the grace and forgiveness to sustain us. You see, it's repentance that is transformative of life. Lives don't change because, hey, I'm pretty much doing okay. In my first church, Mary had been... I was in a turnaround church, so, you know, Norma's a massive blessing. It would have been great to have had that in, in those days. But it was a sort of middle-of-the-road church that um, uh, dared to appoint somebody... Actually, oh, there's another story. I'll tell you about it if you're interested. But uh, Mary had been a Christian nominally for years, but her faith had never grown because she was always running people down. She was married to the organist, but whenever anybody showed any sign of wanting to be more keen or committed or any work that God was beginning to do, she would find flaws about it. She would say, oh, we tried that 20 years ago, it never worked then. Or she would run down the people who were being keen. Um, In fact, every time somebody got converted in the choir... They would come to me privately and say, Rob, could you give, give me another job so I can get out of the choir? Because, you know, it's horrible. Her energy didn't go into bearing fruit. It was bearing grudges. And then in over about a period of a week or two, she totally changed. And, and changed bizarrely because a blind woman that, whose mother's funeral I took lived near her. She wanted, I'd, for a couple of weeks, I was bringing her to church. It was a big pain because we had three services on Sunday morning. And trying to fit in ferrying them as well just became impossible. So I said, would, Mary, would you bring Dorothy to church? And suddenly Dorothy couldn't see and needed somebody to explain what was going on. And for the first time in my life, Mary had to see good things in the church and explain the good stuff that was going on, not just running people down. And suddenly she began to see things differently. Suddenly she actually realised that it was more helpful to show what God was doing than it was to run down every little evidence of anybody's enthusiasm. And the more she began to do that, the more she realised that she needed to change. And she became the eyes of Dorothy and she left behind her negativism. And her life was turned around completely. In fact, so much so, a couple of years ago, after I went back, I went and go and discovered that this 87-year-old woman had had her belly button pierced. But anyway, that's another story as well. <laughs> Total transformation. Um, but that's Jesus' wisdom for us. Get rid of what you know is wrong. Which is not about making the other people whose wrong we can see have to sort themselves out first. This is repentance and faith. It's starting on our knees, knowing that we're the ones who Christ needs to change, to bear fruit. And and it's not just individuals who are branches. That would be a shoot or a twig, wouldn't it? There's a corporate picture here. As a denomination, if we truly desire 
Christ to grow us once again. We need to be wrestling with our repentance together of that disposition just to be like our culture, to have grace to forgive us and renew us and transform us. But until that's our passion and prayer, we're unlikely to see any progress. And if there's any confusion about holiness, how does God prune us? How are we made more clean? That's the point he goes on in the picture to say in verses 3 and 7, which we do that by practising God's word. You prune sin by practising the word of God. I mean, not just practising, attempting to do it, actually living it is the point. God's word is what makes us clean. It's how God prunes us, it prunes us, which is what Jesus says. You're already clean because of... The word I've spoken to you, because you've embraced the word. And it's also in verse 7, the way we stay rooted in Christ. If you remain in me and my words remain, well that's the old verse, abide, you know, dwell in you. That is to say the way to get close to Christ is to go deeper into his word, to obey. That's why any challenge to the authority of scripture is so dangerous to a church, because that's the way we know him and that's the way we grow in him is through the word of God. That's how, actually, any relationship works, isn't it? If you want to know someone, you have to listen to them. Which means we're only really going to have a fruitful life if we do what Jesus says. You know, if you leave Jake, I mean, I was glad, uh, we didn't conspire to this, but I was glad George had that moment at the beginning to say, what are you taking away? Because if nothing changes when all these words have been spoken then there will be no fruit, will there? It's not enough that the Church of England accepts Scripture as its supreme authority if we then ignore it and don't do what it says. So if our church is more concerned to evade Scripture's clear teaching than it is to obey it, the unfruitfulness will be evident. And bluntly, it is evident. Because we're not saying anything different than the culture around us but we're evangelical of course we're we're different than that aren't we we don't believe that do we well here's the third dimension to this practical area verse seven where's the fertilizer of faith we need to pray his will in fact that's the repeated tops and tails the whole section here but there verse seven if you remain in me my words remain in you ask Whatever you wish and it will be given you. If God's words abiding in us, the first work of our life will be to ask what you wish and it will be given. England needs a church to pray. To pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I've taken to revise it, you know, you know, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, we're asking for it to happen now in me today. Because God wants us, Jesus wants us, to ask. Prayer is the first fruit of biblical obedience. Because what will make you want God's will, you'll need to ask him for it. Because our sinful hearts need changing. Because we don't want God's will by nature. We only know and want it by grace. In the vine, Jesus is the one who causes the fruit to grow. So you won't have a fruitful life without Involving him, seeking his grace and help. And that's why in every revival or successful Christian ministry I know of, the foundation has been sacrificial, committed prayer. And bluntly, that's my worry about our evangelical responses to the prayers of love and faith. Because thank God and I do that we've united to protest. But we haven't yet really united to pray. Not together. Not in repentance. And you can't make people do that. It's the work of the Spirit. But until we're ready to spend more time in prayer than on our politics, we may have to await more, await the grace of God we need to turn the tide in our denomination. Because it's his church, it's not ours. And we're asked to bow the knee to him. And part of bowing the knee, yes, it's obedience, but is also prayer. So what are you praying for about your own holiness and fruitfulness? How serious are you to seeking God rather than sorting things out for yourself? It's one of the hardest things to do in ministry 
is to make sure you're asking God about what you're doing. And I wrestle with that. I'm blessed with three guys covenanted to pray with me weekly on Zoom and monthly to sort me out in person. But find it. If you haven't got those people now, if you're starting out in ministry today, think about who will I covenant to pray with and for on a regular basis. And some of that will just be fun of spending time together, but at crisis points or at turning points, they'll be the ones who will be alongside in those decisions. And, you know, we're English, so we don't do this naturally. I found in the, in the GAFCON world, which I was privileged to be at, actually they're, they're much more interdependent like this. There's much more willingness to show and share that dependence on each other in prayer. It comes to them more naturally than it does to an English person. But we need it. Because on your own, apart from the vine, you won't bear fruit. Who was your prayer partners? Pray as well. Prune the sin. Practice his word. Pray as well. You've got to alliterate when you're a preacher. <laughs> Praise him, verse 8. It is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to my disciples. You see, England needs a church that praises God. That actually tells how good God is. Not how good the church is. Not how good what we're doing locally is. It's no use harvesting the vine and then letting the grapes rot in the fruit bowl. Fruit is for sharing and enjoying. Outside and beyond it. Give it away. Praise God's grace. Talk to him about others. Involve them in the benefits that God has given. Because England needs churches that are publicly sharing the goodness and blessings of God. That would transform our churches overnight, it seems to me. Imagine if every Sunday, every person came prepared to share something about what God had encouraged them with in that week. You know, just one thing. But in every conversation, you heard one thing about what God had done to change their lives in that week. That would change what church felt like on a Sunday, wouldn't it? I think it's what Hebrews is talking about, about spur one another on and encourage each other when you meet together. You know, actually, imagine if that was the culture of our local churches, or our denomination even. You'd need to be prepared, wouldn't you? you need to think about it and pray about it and maybe watch out for it in the week. But if I asked you to take that away now, what would be the thing you'd be willing to share? What was the blessing? What was the thing that God opened your eyes to from his word or in his people or in his prayers that actually um, you would want to share? Because if not, maybe we need to do a bit of pruning of this stuff that's getting in the way. If we have no fruit of being rooted in Christ. But if there is, let's not keep it behind our British reserve. Let's share it. Which is why God's blessed us with it. God's work in us is a joy and to be a blessing. Which is where the second half takes us. Because if England needs a church to be rooted in Christ. So that we can be fruitful and grow. Only a life rooted in Christ will be fruitful. It is also true that only a life reflecting Christ will be truly joyful. Only a life that reflects Christ will be truly joyful, which is where 9 to 17 takes us. Because this next section is still a commentary on that image of the vine. It fills out the picture of it, the fruitfulness scene. It's there in verse 16 at the end of this section. You might think, oh, well, he's stopped talking about vine, now he's talking about love. No, these things are interconnected. And specifically, Jesus is making clear that remaining in the vine is remaining in my love, verse 9. And he even repeats the prayer theme at the end of this section. So rather than focus on what grows out of the life Christ gives, he gives us insight into what goes into that relationship. And Christ's purpose for our life together as a church, in the love that he shows us, is joy, verse 11. I've told you this. This not just being the sentence before, but the whole of that section. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now the stereotype of your average Anglican church is somewhat different than that. I did one, I mean, uh, Tom did a great job this morning in morning prayer. Um, but, you know, there's last few psalms. In 149, 150, it talks about praising God with dancing. I'm looking around the room. <laughs> but uh, trust me, you'll never da- you, you don't really dance unless you're really feeling joyful, do you? 
I mean, you know, dad dancing at this, you know, at weddings and things, that's something different. That's sort of just to embarrass your children usually. But, um, but actually, joy makes you want to, yeah, there's something about it, isn't it? It's something you can't hold back. And, 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 you know, Jesus' joy is the point. You know, what happens in heaven? We don't sit around and say, yeah, yeah, I'm You know, the, the united people of God are going to be joined in glorious praise of the Lamb who is on the throne, the one who has died for us, the one who is at the heart of our midst. Our hearts will be liberated and free of all those stereotypical constraints. But at the end of the day, England needs more joy. Where is it going to come from? It's not going to come from our secular world. You don't get joy there, do you? You get therapy... You get pleasure, but not joy. Why? Because joy needs people. Firstly, joy is only found serving God's will. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands to remain in his love. That's why the joy will be in you, in obedience. It should be obvious, needs saying. If you want joy in your life, you have to do what he says. But, but that's not news, because that's how parenting works, isn't it? When you... Bash your children with, you know, punch your sister and you're going to get in trouble. Play with her like I asked you and, you know, joy all round. Well, whatever therapy you particularly use on your children. Um, but to reflect Christ's love, we need to know his joy. We need to be willing to do God's will. You know, faith is not supposed to be a chore. It is supposed to be a joy. Gathering is supposed to be a taste of heaven. That's what conferences are good about because we're not just hanging out with our immediate family or the people we're forced to hang out with. We actually want to be together and learn about Christ and we want to be together in praise and encouragement. And, you know, that's why it's a taste of heaven. We need the joy to overflow from the church. England needs to find its joy again through the people of God being obedient to the will of God. See, unfortunately, we've got into the habit of communicating obedience of saying that obeying God is good for us, like taking castor oil. It really is horrible, but it's good for you. Or we talk about that deep, deep inner joy that nobody sees, but you probably think it has to be there because it's supposed to be the fruit of the Spirit. But actually, it's the joy of serving the will of God because that's when you find who you really are. And that's the future destiny of our world because every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Lord. And they're not going to do it constrained to do that. Yes, there will be a judgment at which those who do it under protest will find an eternal destiny apart from him. But at the end of the day, we're called to actually say that will be the moment when we suddenly finally get it and it will click and that this is what we were made for. And we will want it. But unless we help the world see that the joy of Christ is the joy of life... Our joy is serving God's will. Our joy is found in sacrificing self-interest, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this he lay down his love for his friends. And we know that was Jesus' joy. Hebrews picks it up, doesn't it? In Hebrews 12, 2. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. The secret to joy, in other words, is not our self-fulfillment. It's in giving ourselves away for others. And if you think about it, it's true. The most joyful things about your ministry won't be stuff you get, but where you see others grow. Where you've given yourself away, but you're not bothered about that because you see the life God brings to others through it. And we sort of know it, but we forget to live it. And we invest in a lot of things to keep life to ourselves. But if you really want to seek a fruitful, joyful life, you won't find it as politicians always promising us in promoting our self-interest, you won't find it in that alternative gospel that says the only thing you need is to be affirmed. Because if you affirm yourself, you don't end up with joy, you just end up on your own. Joy is where you go beyond yourself. We need to be good news, just not just bring good news. And ministry is costly of our time, energy and resources. But it's worth it. Because in the sacrifice that we give, we find the joy that is a taste of heaven. So serve his will, sacrifice self-interest, and simply share his love. Verse 16, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Go and fruit that will laugh. Do you know the little word that we missed out there? I chose and appointed you to go 
and bear fruit. It's interesting, you know, you just talk about branches of not going anywhere, really. But actually, no, this is how you are a branch of Christ, is to go and bear fruit. The greatest joy in our Christian life is seeing God give life, new faith to someone through the feeble words and deeds that we share. And that's still my greatest joy, growing new Christians. Indeed, one of the things that I've missed in these last few months in this role has been like hands-on, day-to-day, sharing of Jesus' good news and seeing him step-by-step changing lives. And George was talking about it, it's brilliant. You know, that long ministry of being... And, and, you know, why long ministries? It's not just some sort of secret trip. It's because we're family. And, and trust me, now my youngest is 20. I'm not sure I've got to the end of parenting him yet, to be honest. <laughs> but 20 years is nothing to parent. Why did we think it would take us less time in a church? And, OK, you may have adopted toddlers or, you know, or people who are starting secondary school when you go to the particular ministry year in. But trust me, it takes time to grow in the love and, and, and fruitfulness of Christ. But I mean, I, I, it will keep me going for years with the one or two. I mean, I, you know, the one I'm still dining out on at the moment is Mark. He was off the estate in Cheadle, no job. He couldn't read, fostered with dysfunctional parents. <clears throat> disconnected from society in fact reputed by the local PCSO as the source of most of local petty crime because when he started coming to church and it changed um, she was so shocked she walked in on our community cafe and said what are you doing dear? I said well he's been coming to church she said oh, I wondered why all our crime and things have gone down <laughs> <laughs> and long ministry 11 years ago I bought him a pint at, at the Queen's Jubilee the diamond one that we celebrated in the, in the village and, um, and that built enough of a connection so that every time I saw him on the street, usually hang out doing something dubious, um, we'd have a conversation. And he didn't really have people talk to him. Normally they shunned him or avoided him, and him and his three mates. And, and uh, they came to church for a dare. I dared them too, and another guy. And uh, they couldn't read the words, they didn't know the songs, but suddenly they found other people talk to them as well, and they'd never had that before, and... And, you know, they, they started to do it a bit. And then five years ago, they came to Christianity Explored. And then we had to do it again because they had no clue what we were talking about the first time around, or the second, or the third, actually. But the fourth time, they were starting to get into it. And, and, um, and we did feed them cakes. So that was a big incentive. <laughs> and we tailed it for their reading limitations. But Mark came to it, and he believed it. And, you know, two years ago, he professed his faith and confirmed. And... And this joy of seeing a life that was broken, transformed. That's what God's called you to in your ministry. Is to be fruit growing in the communities of England. And all the other stuff that gives us a lot of angst will continue to give us a lot of angst. But that's not the point. The point is that God puts you where you are so that the life of Christ will take root and bear fruit and never lose it because that's the heart of it. That's what England needs, a church which will share a life rooted in Christ so it can be fruitful and a life reflecting his love so it can be joyful. And in a culture beset by despondency and depression, in a life offered by the world that seems very pointless and purposeless, And the pleasures that they're offered are only self-indulgence and self-expression without any real satisfaction or joy. This is good news. This, to be grafted into the vine of Jesus, to be part of a community that is being transformed by his grace, that is being called into his holiness, being shaped by his word, is good news of great joy for all the people. And we tell them that every Christmas, but it's true every day. And the challenge for our lives in the church is to live it. Fruitfully, because Jesus supplies what we need, and joyfully, because his love has changed us. And perhaps the challenge for us is to be careful that the blessings that we have through an evangelical faith and heritage that has focused our thoughts on his word 
but also built us a little bit of complacency about our security. You know, we don't need the Church of England, one leading minister told me. They need us more than we need them. But Jesus says we all need each other <clears throat> to fulfil this vision. So perhaps we need to make sure repentance takes root in our hearts and that love and service will motivate us. And it will be hard, but it is family. And dysfunctional families do we love as well. Not by compromising with their sins, but by loving and serving them and holding on to the truth. And who knows, maybe this generation will actually be the generation that seeds the revival that we pray for. As long as you pray for it. So let's do that now. God our Father, we are nothing without you. That vine picture makes that clear. Aside from Christ, what we do is pointless and will be fruitless and joyless. So Lord, have mercy. Forgive us when those truths that are to transform us have been put on the back burner. When our obsessions have been what suits us rather than what glorifies you. When we excuse our own weaknesses and point the finger at others and forget that actually all of us sit equally under the need of your grace. And we've all been given the same gospel to share. So Lord, please have mercy on us and help us Go away from this place, ready to serve, ready to suffer for what is true, ready to show the world that you're alive and to share with the world the news that they need to hear so that England, who needs this church, will realise that life is to be found there, love is to be seen there and joy is to be experienced there. And do that work in our hearts, Lord, because we're tired. And we're worn down. But your spirit is with us. And your truth remains. And your love will never let us go. So do it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, Rob. That was such an encouragement uh, in, in my ministry, in my perspective. Uh, I really feel uh, enthused to say the least.